Everyone's talking about 13 reasons why. Is that a good or bad thing? Plus, new research quantifies just how much black teachers matter to black students. And if your school had a place for teachers to go smash things to relieve stress, would you use it? All those topics plus kids these days on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned public radio journalist, and I'm joined as always by a group of hardworking teachers who are ready to talk. Let's introduce them. Luann Fox, what do you teach? English. At the high school level? I do. Princeton Grayson, you're back for a second week in a row. What do you teach? Middle school advanced academics. And Elaine Jarden, what do you teach? Middle school math, eighth grade math. All three of them are public school teachers in the Kansas City metro area. Let's get to it. Well, people keep talking about the new Netflix series, 13 Reasons Why. It has garnered both praise and controversy. If you're a teacher or work in education, then by now you probably know at least the broad outlines of what the series is about. Based on an award-winning young adult novel, 13 Reasons Why tells the story of Hannah Baker, a troubled high school girl who commits suicide. She leaves behind a set of cassette tapes sent to various people that, in her eyes, bear some responsibility for driving her to take her own life. Besides suicide, the show touches upon other difficult topics like sexual assault, alcohol and drug abuse, and bullying. The show comes with a TV MA rating, and several episodes have disclaimers about their explicit content. Let's go with the praise first. Maureen Ryan in Variety says it's sincere, creatively successful, essential viewing. Other critics have said the show is a frank portrayal of many important and dark issues that teenagers often deal with and credit the show with kickstarting a national conversation about suicide and what often contributes to it. The controversy. Zoe Williams, writing in The Guardian, calls it a, quote, revenge fantasy that portrays suicide as an act that will achieve something. Also, many school districts are worried. Districts are sending letters home to parents warning them of the show's content, suggesting that they watch it so that they are able to talk about it credibly with their students or kids. At least one school district here locally in the Kansas City area where No Wrong Answers is taped has sent one of those letters home. We've actually gotten requests from listeners to talk about 13 Reasons Why, because so many teachers and school staffs right now are in the throes of figuring out how to talk about this show and the issues it brings up. And we have our teachers here today to do just that. Let me start um, by directing the conversation to Luann Fox. I know your district has uh, been having some conversations about 13 Reasons Why. Basically, our conversations revolve around the importance of Having students watch this, uh, not in the absence of other people they can talk about this with, not other teenagers, but um, other concerned adults. Yeah. Have you have you watched the show yourself? Um, I'm in the middle of it, yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I know your school, your campus has, has dealt with, with suicide in the past. You, you teach high schoolers. So I wonder if that has given your staff, your school... Um, perspective as this show has come up? I feel like it has. Uh, We did have uh, a tragedy a couple of years ago where we had two suicides in about as many days, and I think it brought our school together in many ways. Our school, I think we talked more openly about being caring individuals with each other. I know a year after it happened, we had a week of giving throughout our whole school where some 
activities were orchestrated so that uh, students were aware of uh, being more giving to other students and looking outside of themselves and, and being help, more helpful to, to other students and just more caring in general. So, I mean, do you think that that experience has helped your campus talk about this, if it has come up? I do. I, I think that uh, as students and as faculty, we are more aware of uh, how the stresses of school factor in and how we treat each other in the halls and we try to look out for each other a little bit more. I do want to get back to that. I also want to bring Princeton and Elaine into the conversation. What have been your experiences um, at least um, since 13 Reasons Why has come out? Have you watched the show? What are your reflections on it? I've watched the show. Um, A couple of my students have watched it. I know that I've had a couple of students request the book from the library so they can actually go read it as well. Um, but I haven't seen a large conversation around it on campus or even amongst the teaching staff. I know a couple of the teachers have seen this series, um, but it hasn't been a dominant or a um, popular conversation amongst yeah. my students. Elaine? Um, I read 13 Reasons Why, and I, I've recommended it a lot to students. Um, when I watched the show, though, I was pretty surprised that it wasn't true to the book that I recommended at all. And I can see where teachers might be backpedaling a little bit now, thinking that, oh, this is such a great connection. We can have them watch the show. They loved the book and kind of getting a little bit more than they bargained for. What are the, what are the differences that you've noticed? And I know, Luann, you've also read the book as well. You're, you're an English teacher. Yes. What are, for, for both of you, what, what are the differences you note between the series and the book? I, personally, I think that it's a lot more graphic. And maybe it's just because, you know, the, the images, the, the series, yeah. maybe it's because you're seeing it instead of picturing it in your head. Um, but I also feel like it kind of romanticizes the character mm-hmm. of Hannah and makes her seem cool and almost like a puppet master. You know, she's influencing people beyond the grave. And I didn't get quite that same sense about her when I was reading the book. I Yeah, I agree. Luann, what is the, what is the effect uh, on a student body when a student takes their life um well it's it's devastating um it's i mean absolutely it's devastating but it's devastating in ways that you can't really understand at the time because as adults you know we supposedly have our prefrontal cortex um established and we we sort of get consequences of things and you you get you get students who they just turn it on themselves. What could they have done? What could they have done? What could they have done? And they can't focus on school. And anything can set them off in school. And it's just it's just the reverb. And, and it comes in waves. And then, and then they feel guilty because um, they can't shake it. They know that if they talk to their friends, their friends have their own sets of, of what, they've, they're, what they're feeling as well. And so how are they going to impact their friends? And I think you have a lot of people who need to talk about how they feel, but they don't know how to talk about how they feel because most 17-year-olds think they're the only ones that feel whatever they feel and nobody else knows how they've ever felt before. Um, do you agree with the criticism then that, um, kind of like what, what what Elaine was pointing to, that um, the story of Hannah Baker and how she creates these tapes and and kind of orchestrates this, this post-death um, uh, reflection on, on, on her taking her own life, does that mischaracterize what what, a, what the true impacts of, of suicide can be on a community? You mean the way that Hannah Baker yeah. orchestrated this, yeah. uh, the character? I believe that's absolutely nothing a 17-year-old would probably do. I think that when a person is to the point where he or she feels that taking um, 
their life is the only option, they're just they're just depleted. And the, even if they want to, they're they're so depleted that I don't think that they can orchestrate and do all the mental moves and the jumps that it would take to to cast a net over something like 13 people to try to make them feel some sort of accountability. If they can eke out a note, I think that's probably the best that they can do. Um, that kind of person is in such pain that I don't think they they have a thought about what's going to happen after. They just want to be out of the pain. Right. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about just the actual depiction of the act itself in one of the episodes. There's, there's a lot of other very disturbing scenes. Is there something to be said for uh, teenagers and adolescents not being able to process the, the visual imagery of that or, or being unduly influenced by, for example, watching a girl... Um, slash her wrists in the in the bathtub or or watch a sexual assault or rape is there is there something to be said that they that they that they can't do that or or are we not giving enough credit to to teens i i myself i'm not a mental health professional so i'm just going off the national association of school psychologists position on this and kind of like what you were describing luann they're saying that teenagers just aren't mature enough to process all of that at this point and i wholeheartedly agree with that i think sometimes we think that kids these days have grown up faster and are therefore exposed to more and therefore more able to process it. But I don't think that's the case at all. Um, I think that without those conversations with adults, teens are seeing some stuff that can be pretty disturbing for them. And then their ways of coping may or may not be healthy. Princeton. I, w- I don't know. I guess I think for me, it's important that we are having conversations around this topic. I think anything that sparks a conversation that could potentially lead to prevention is important. And I think that to this point, like some people look at the suicide scene of Hannah Baker and say that it's too much and it's too graphic. And then others are looking at like, okay, now they can they can connect to it and understand this is not something they actually want to experience for themselves. So I don't know. I, I guess I think the conversation is important and while you, you need to be intentional around the way you frame a conversation or initiate the conversation, I think it's still worth having a conversation. The one I, thing I kind of worry about is um, that everybody, for lack of a better way of saying it, in 13 Reasons Why is um, pretty. And just they, they look they look kind of put together. And I, I worry about the students who don't look like them, who don't look like Hannah Baker and who don't look like the Justin character and who don't even look like the Bryce character, but who still is not learning the right messages as a young man and, um, and him himself. He can be he doesn't have to be the captain of the football team, but he can also be someone who hurts women. And uh, a lot of these students who feel displaced and they don't see themselves in 13 Reasons Why. Uh, to put more more of a point on it, I know, I mean, Princeton, we've taught before actually getting in front of the mic. I mean, you teach at a, at a school with mostly of students of color, black mm-hmm. students, Latino students. Um, Luann, you teach at a school that's mostly white students. But you, Princeton, have kind of looked at this series and looked at its effect in a different lens. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've talked to some colleagues uh, about yeah, so, your own reflections upon the series, kind of hinting at what Luann just said. Yeah, that I was actually going to make that same connection that we the conversation I've started to have around 13 Reasons, the fact that it has sparked such a national conversation around trauma and student-centered trauma particularly, and that recently there's been this increase in the highlighting of black death by police officers, particularly in, in the newsreels. And so to see that all of a sudden now that there's this Netflix series making millions of dollars that seemingly is targeted toward white middle class students, 
now there you have associations that are coming out and making stances against this or stances about this. Whereas when we talk about like uh, Black Lives Matter, not even just the movement itself, but the fact that black people are getting killed at the hands of police officers and that videos are graphically shown on newsreels 24 hours a day. But we don't see any type of outcry around what is the impact of those black and brown students who are seeing this. And so. I, I find it very intriguing that, to your point, that those who don't look like the people in 13 Reasons, what are we doing for them? What what types of safeguards are we putting in place? What types of conversations are we having around? Because letters are not being sent home about, hey, this, I mean, just last week, a 15-year-old student was shot and killed by a police officer. In Dallas, Texas. In Dallas, well, Texas. Yeah. And so what types of um, messaging are we putting around that? And what type of outcry are we having as a society about how do we protect our most vulnerable um, students in these type of uh, situations. Elaine, uh, Luann, I mean, do you, something about that resonate with you? Absolutely. I mean, I think you make a, an excellent point. And the thing that it makes me think about as a teacher is, am I qualified to have those conversations with students? And what's the right way to go about that? Because like, as I said before, I'm not a mental health expert. And it was it was news to me when I was reading up on this topic that you are supposed to directly ask students if they're considering suicide. I assumed that you were supposed to kind of just feel it out, like lead, go where they lead you, you know, not ask direct questions. And, you know, I'm in my ninth year of teaching and it seems a little bit late for me to be starting to learn this. I think there's a huge gap in what teachers and parents know to do in all of these situations. Yeah. Um, so I guess wrapping up this conversation, you've all at least watched part of this series. I know Princeton's watched the whole thing. Um What's something that it gets right? What's something that it gets maybe not totally right about this con- this topic of, of suicide and its consequences? I think what it definitely gets right is that obviously suicide is real and that there are students who contemplate suicide and some who even attempt and are successful. I think one of the things that it gets grossly inaccurate is that it gives this feeling that even after death, you still have impact. And not, and not to say that you don't, but the way that they have structured the series is where Hannah Baker, who's the one who commits suicide, narrates the entire series, makes it seem as if she still has this reach beyond the grave that honestly probably would not happen, um, to Luann's previous point, that a 17-year-old who's feeling this down and, and this depressed to the point where they're ready to take their lives, are not, their life is not going to be in a space where they can actually orchestrate such a outcome um, after death. And so the fact that she's narrating, it, it makes it feel like death is not really that final. Yeah. Uh, and to Princeton's point, the Jason Foundation, a suicide prevention nonprofit, says on average there are more than 5,200 suicide attempts per day in children grades 7 through 12. Uh, Elaine and, and Luann, what does the, the series get right and maybe not so right? One of the things that I think that it opens the door for, I don't know if it gets it right, but it opens the door if, if we take that step, I think, is we could, we could ask people who watch this, students and adults alike, um, what could have gone differently here? Um, what, what, uh, at what point could a counselor, one of the friends, um, what, what, what different step could somebody have taken? Because often that's what it's about. It's about a series of steps that leads to this really horrible outcome and what could be different on the path that would have would have had for a better one mm-hmm. and maybe not so right not so right i i'd like what what princeton had to say and i certainly wouldn't be able to say it any better but you know the the idea of just the powerful orchestration um i i like what they're trying to get at is that um multiple people um are are around and in 
Im- impacted by and also impact a, a student's decision to do something that is this dire. But the way that that's done through the tapes and the way that there's the, the secrecy around it and the way that the the students have to manipulate the tapes and it seems to be, you know, all at, at Hannah's narration seems to be, to me, more, it's just more sinister and more... Um, words that are negative that I can't really come up with that, um, well, I've, that I've would heard, be in real life. I've heard it described as a whodunit, right? It's, it's kind of, it's kind of uh, framed or structured like a, a murder mystery. And it, it's really not meant to pull these kids together. And that's another kind of a sad thing. I mean, you, you, get these, you get these kids who are dealing with this, and the thing that pulls them together is you've got the tapes. You've got the tapes, and which tape am I on, and the tape that you have to listen to. But the them mourning together or joining together or understanding that life is precious together. I wish that could have been shown more. Uh, well, a great conversation here. Thanks to our listeners for suggesting that we talk about it or kind of pushing us to talk about it. Um, resources about um, some of the things we've talked about, some of people's critical responses to 13 Reasons Why can be found at our website. Our podcast today is sponsored by Teach for America Kansas City, which believes one day all children will have the opportunity to attain an excellent education. You can make an immediate impact on that mission in Kansas City. To find out how, visit teachforamerica.org or find them on Twitter at TFA underscore KC and on Instagram at TFA KC. Well, on last week's episode, we talked about white privilege, the very concept itself, and whether it does impact teachers' work in schools. The short answer is yes, it does. The topic of race and teaching has stayed with us, and actually new research we stumbled across recently has taken us down the same path this week. A study from Johns Hopkins University concludes black students who have at least one black teacher in elementary school are more likely to graduate high school. The report says having at least one black teacher in the early grades reduces a black student's chances of dropping out by nearly 30 percent. This, the authors say, adds to a growing body of research that's already shown short-term positive impacts of pairing black teachers with black students, higher test scores among them. What is an appropriate policy response to this new data? In a sharply worded commentary on Ed Week this past week, New York City charter school teacher Rafiq Kalam Eddin, who is black, argued the student the study should lend momentum to efforts to recruit and train more black teachers and principals. But more pointedly, he wrote, it should also make educators question what he calls the, quote, placebo of school integration. Integration, as Kalam Eddin points out, has often been portrayed as an antidote to the achievement gap between white students and students of color. He suggests that what may be more important for students of color is than the presence of white peers, though that may be helpful, is the presence of an educator who looks like them. Well, what of it to the teachers at the table uh, in this episode? Does this idea, this research, strike a chord with you in any way? Absolutely. Um, I think it goes to a bigger uh, conversation, though, about students learning from people who look like them in a variety of ways. Uh, For example, English teachers are predominantly women, and I think it's really important that every student have the opportunity to study literature with a male teacher at some point in their career, just because perspectives can be different. Uh, Same thing that math teachers are typically men, and it's important for students to have the opportunity to learn math from a female teacher. Um, it's just important for kids to make connections. I think that's kind of what the bottom line is here with somebody who they can see themselves in. And any way that we can make that happen is a good thing. Um, I mean, Prince, we've talked about this on multiple occasions, that you are very mindful of your role in your students' lives, and you do teach a, a student body that is largely composed of students of color. Um, what is it that you offer your, your black students 
uh, as a black male? Um, and how do you see that responsibility? Um, well, that's a pretty big question there. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that I think you might be willing to talk about. <laughs> right, definitely. Um, I think what I offer my black students is a reflection of what's possible, um, as well as a window of opportunities. And so, because for me, I when I look at my students, both black male females are black males and black females are brown females, brown males. All of my students of color, particularly, I feel that I see myself in them and I see my future. So I think a lot of times we talked about I mentioned this in our last episode that part of the privilege of, of whiteness in urban settings, is they can separate themselves from the futures of their students sometimes. And so for me, I see that every day that what I do and don't contribute will impact my future uh, very drastically. And so I feel that it gives me this underlying hope in, in what's possible for my kids. And it gives my kids an underlying hope what's possible for their future because they see me as a black male who's come from similar background as them, who is in a presumably presumably successful situation or uh, in a successful role, and so it gives them opportunity to believe in themselves. And the same when we talked about um, a President Barack Obama, for him to be able to assail to the highest office in the land gives hope for other students, for other people who look like him, um, where they may not have had that opportunity before. Uh, how does it? Can you illustrate for me how it impacts a black student academically? Because I mean, we just this research, right, that that says that having even just one black teacher when you're in elementary school raises the, the possibility that you'll you'll graduate high school. So I think it, it comes from an expectation standpoint. Like in in the research that I've read and the in the conversations I've had with black teachers, both male and female teachers of color in general, is that when we are able to see and believe in a student, then we push them a lot harder. We, we, we gauge our expectations based on our belief in what is possible for this, this student. So that means we're recommending them for gifted and talented class at a higher rate. Um, we, are prov- we are providing more rigorous opportunities for them at a higher rate. We're, we're suggesting them for AP and pre-AP courses at a higher rate so that they are actually put on a track, a track of success, whereas that's not always the case with when they have a predominantly white um, educational staff. And why do you think that is? I mean, it's not... Maybe- I think it becomes... I mean, it's all about our biases that we come into the world. We've been conditioned in society that when every time you turn on the TV, blacks are being criminalized, people of color are being criminalized, that's what you tend to take in. And so when you see, even from a disparity standpoint of discipline in the classroom, you see that black boys are suspended at a larger rate than white boys for the same infractions. And so... Part of that is because we believe, as an educator, this is a, a perfect example, that if I'm a white educator and I see these, what I believe to be evidence of a future of criminality in the student, if I get them early, if I suspend them now and they learn their lesson now, then I can stop them from being their criminal going forward. Whereas with a, a white kid doing that same infraction, it's, oh, it's just a kid being a kid. But we often don't allow our our children of color to actually be kids because they we have been conditioned to believe in the criminality of them. So I think for me, when I see that black boy, I see a black boy. I see a young kid being a kid because I remember when I was a kid who made those same type of choices. So I have a lot more empathy for the choices they're making without holding them accountable for this adulthood. We often I mean, this is the same reason why 13 year old, 14 year old black men are getting shot down by police officers who claim that they were afraid of their lives because they see an adult male when they're looking at a child. So in the same way, we have teachers in the classroom who are seeing their adult versions are trying to stop the adult version of what they believe could possibly happen by giving all these additional punishments at such an early age. Um, I just wanted to bring up that it's uh, just to your point, it makes me think I've taught in public schools and I've taught in charter schools. And 
the charter environments were hyper structured. Mm-hmm. Kids are walking in lines. You know, there are hand signals for them to communicate what they want. Um, and you just don't see that in the suburban public schools that I went to. Uh, I don't think any parent would have tolerated us walking in lines at a high school level in the suburbs. But here in some of those more urban charter schools, it's seen as that's how you maintain order. And what's that a reflection of, you think? Oh, I think it's a reflection of the fear that Princeton's describing. I mean, what do we think is going to happen if we let them have an unstructured passing period, you know? And at the same time, you're not teaching a real skill, you know? Like if you're going to the grocery store, you're not going to have somebody telling you where to put your body and where to walk and how to stand. Mm-hmm. You know, it's appropriate in elementary school. It's not appropriate in high school. Uh, do you agree with the commentary um, that was published in Edwee by Rafiq Kalamidin, a, a teacher in New York, that this is um, that this should maybe put the brakes on efforts to um, to integrate schools, to to have students of different racial backgrounds be in the same classroom? I mean, I don't know that it's argue. I don't necessarily agree with the idea that we need to stop integrating schools, but I do think it's important. Um, kind of like what you were talking about, Princeton, for us to talk more about our biases and how to address those, because we all have them. Mm -hmm. But that's something that has not ever come up in my professional development provided by a school that I've taught for. I think that um, it makes me want us to reevaluate why is integration the goal. And so oftentimes we say that in the vein that we think that integration is going to bring this academic equity and that with integration comes um, higher performing achievement. As if to say that sitting a white kid next to a black kid is going to make this black kid smarter. But what we're really talking about is with integration comes resources. When what with white families comes resources. And so to me, we should let, we should have less focus on can we get white bodies in black buildings and more about how do we allocate funding and resources more equitably? Mm-hmm. Because it's not really about integration. I mean, you ask many um, older folks who were in schools before integration, and they would often argue that they had better schools during segregation. Now, I'm not a proponent of segregation, but I think that there's value in integrating schools, both socioeconomic, both racial, both gender. But at the same time, we have to have a larger conversation. Integration is not a solution to the academic achievement gap or the opportunity gap, and people often use it as if it is. And I think that's where I, I take issue because I recognize that it's not. Getting more uh, black teachers and black principals into the profession, um, I would imagine, also has its its hurdles. I mean, I don't want to be the spokesperson here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but I do think that's an issue that often comes up, right? If you're, yeah. Yeah, I mean, to that point about getting <laughs> yeah. recruiting black teachers, yeah. like if we have more of us on staff, then we don't feel like we have to be the spokespeople for our entire demographic. Um, exactly. At right. the same time, I recently read an article by Andre Perry, who's a notable um, writer for the Heckinger Report. Yes, yeah. and he's an educator. He is an educator, right. and I want to read one of his quotes because he talks about this research in um, black recruitment. He says, "Focusing on black recruitment insidiously shields white educators from scrutiny and downplays how important it is to provide teachers an anti-racist education before and after they enter the profession." So to that point, black getting black teachers in the classroom or leaders, people of color, is not going to solve the issues at hand. And I think it does that does not address the, the system itself. And we need to get to a place where we are getting teachers who are more anti-racist than they are, and because that's what's going to change the disparities. White more. and black, and it doesn't yeah, matter. Exactly. <laughs> I, and right. That's why I said teachers, not just white teachers, but teachers in general, mm-hmm. because as a black man, I hold biases. Um, 
as a male, I hold biases that I have to often be more conscientious of. And so I think that it's important that we start to have these type of professional developments and have these conversations and hold people accountable for this. There should be equity measures in our teacher evaluations. There should be equity measures in our principal evaluations. And I think that... You're saying hold teachers accountable to how they... The role they play in creating equitable outcomes for kids. And so I think that until we see that start to take place, then it's just going to be a talking point. I feel Uh, like that's where we are. Luann and Elaine, I mean... You, I, just, oh, I was just going to say, as you as you'd mentioned earlier, though you, the people who would be evaluating the teachers, we've got to think about their attitudes as well. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh yeah, I mean, and you, but you, uh, Elaine and Luann, you you also see a challenge, and it's not only just about recruiting more t- teachers of color per se, but also changing the mindsets of the the teachers, and notably the white teachers who are already in the classroom. Well, and we need to be honest about. Um, needing a conversation around what we value, because I think everyone sitting around this table wants equity and access for all kids. I'm not going to say that that goal is shared by everyone. I mean, look at our current president. There are obviously people that align with him, and I don't think he's about equity and access at all. And so depending... So you're saying colleagues. Sure. I mean, I do think that there are people that I have worked with who would not be in favor, actually, of us creating a more equitable environment for all students. Um... And so that, to me, is really where the work needs to be done, that schools need to be forthright in saying, here's what we believe, here's what we value, either you're in or you're out, as opposed to having each Mm -hmm. teacher or clique of teachers define what is important to them, because those attitudes are what's passed on to kids and as a parent, that really makes me worry. Yeah. Uh, Well, the research originally... um that I talked about at the start of this segment from Johns Hopkins University. You can um, get a link to that at our website. Our final topic today, an elementary school principal in Maryland is stepping down at the end of this school year after it came to light recently that she had created what she called a smash space for her teachers. This was a room the teachers could go to in the school building and reportedly hack away at objects like old rocking chairs with baseball bats. It was meant as a stress reliever. Parents found out about the smash space, and many were appalled. It quickly became a hot topic on online parent forums where some of them expressed outrage at the idea that teachers were being encouraged to use violent means to relieve their pent-up feelings when, at the same time, they were telling students to avoid such behavior and find more productive ways to deal with stress. The principal admitted in her own words that the smash smash space was, quote, a lapse in judgment. So she's stepping down from her position, but she says she's going to seek another job in the same district. Uh, so what of it? Our teacher's at the table. I don't think you have a problem with the smash space. <laughs> no, I think it's brilliant. <laughs> Not, at all. Not at all. Not at all. What do you like about the idea of the smash space? I, I don't have a problem with people needing to take out stress physically in an appropriate way, and I think that's exactly what that smash space is. Uh, yeah, I would argue that it is a productive way of relieving stress. I mean, we have people who do kickboxing and take on other physical activities to relieve stress. I think... I commend her for taking the initiative to bring it to the building so that mm-hmm. if in the midst of a planning period they need to go release some stress. Um, I don't know. I, I like it. I wish I would have encouraged her to stay in her position. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe the lapse of judgment is the fact that it was like furniture and such. Maybe she could have just gotten a kicking bag or something or a boxing bag. 
Um, but I think the, a rubber room. Right. I, I think the idea <laughs> banged against the is wall. A step in the right direction, honestly. And so, yeah, Louis I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like it was mandatory. I mean, whoever mm-hmm. wanted to use it could go use it. So, um, and why isn't that productive? Um, I, I am one of those people who kickbox that's all, that, and do yoga. And that's, I mean, I expend physical energy in order to relieve stress. It's been very helpful for my mental health. And there mm-hmm. were also some parents mentioned in this story that said, you know, I don't understand why why teachers would need a, 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 spa, a smash space when they're teaching elementary school students. I have two and to words that. for you. <laughs> Google Forms. <laughs> I mean, it's. I, I would say most of the time the things that are stressful about my job are not student-related. They're administrative task-related. Like, not at my administrators, but just the number of forms and things that need to be filled out on other people's deadlines can be incredibly stressful. So, so to that point, you, you say, I, you know... You can empathize with someone who's reached a point where they're they're ready to take a bat to an old rocking oh, yeah. chair. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, in previous episodes, we talked about why people quit the profession and, mm-hmm. and write all these letters about it. I think if they go back and read some of those, they'll see why a smash room would be a good idea. Um, and to the parents who don't think, oh, teachers should be should be in a space like we're dealing with 24 to 25 individual personalities that we're supposed to be catering to in any given moment. I think that in itself is stressful. I think parents get stressed about their two to three children. And so I think it's um, it's it's foolish to think that we would not. I mean, we're human. We're, we're not like some sub some special species of people that. Although I would argue we probably are, but <laughs> that that have superpowers um, so that we can avoid that. Like we are human and we are susceptible to the same societal pressures. And so I think it's appropriate that we have spaces to de-stress. Um, so how do you guys relieve your 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 work related, teaching related stress? Because I, I gather none of you have smash spaces at your schools. We do not. Not yet. <laughs> right. But coming soon, maybe. Proposal pending. Right. Before, I, before I messed up my knees, I would go for really long runs. Um, I'm aging and uh, my cartilage is disappearing, so mm-hmm. that's uh, not as viable anymore. Mm-hmm. So you do kickboxing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I do a lot of talking with other teachers. I'm thankful that I have a commute because I try to get all of that done on my commute home. So then once I'm home, I, I can kind of compartmentalize the school day into its thing and then my home life into this other thing. So you Be- call people on your on Yeah, your call home. other teachers and just kind of vent about what's going on to somebody who's not directly in it but can relate, and that helps a lot. Yeah, I would agree. Um, during the week, often it's either a run or a bike ride, and neither one of those are – my fans at the moment, I'll do a lot of binge watching, so I'll just escape my reality. <laughs> um, but Fridays definitely are my happy hour days where we de, um, de-stress from the week and just decompress. The teacher happy hour. Oh, yeah, I think yes. non-teachers don't realize how. It's a classic. Teacher happy <laughs> hour is a wonderful thing. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, Smash Space is possibly coming to a school near you, but uh, if, you <laughs> if you want to read that article, I think it was in the Washington Post about the uh, Smash Space in um, Maryland. That now is no longer. You can go to our website for that. We end each episode with a segment we call Kids These Days. Our teachers tell us about the things trending among their students over the past week. It's a window into the sometimes strange world of teachers. So each week we ask, what are the kids into these days? We're getting towards the end of the school year. Elaine, I understand, even though you've been on maternity leave, that you yes. do have I did some um, research. Qu- quite a trendy kids these days that I've, I even know about. So. <laughs> the kids these days trend is the fidget spinner. Yeah. So um, it's kind of like a ceiling fan with three blades. It fits in the palm of your hand, and you just kind of hold the center and spin the three blades around. comes in a variety of colors and materials. 
I figure it's this generation's pog, but very yeah. hot right now. For someone who may not know, what is the point of the fidget spinner? What is its purpose? Its intended purpose is as stress relief, right? So the idea is that you could fidget with it under a desk or a table and not distract others while dispelling some energy. I would imagine that most middle schoolers have not mastered uh, the discretion of using the fidget spinner, and they're probably all over the place. <laughs> uh, Luann, what are your kids into these days? Well... Elaine won out over me on the fidget spinners because I was definitely going to talk about the fidget spinners. Yes, there was controversy before we came on the mic. So about who was going to get the fidget yeah. spinners because um, that's there. But uh, Theraputty uh, has not gone all the way out um, of vogue with Theraputty. The yeah. Explain. Um, putty that kids can get and kind of like silly putty but yeah, not as like, thick it's not as thick and students can you know manipulate it on their desk and and uh, you know work it with their fingers and it it soothes them and uh, they've shown it to me and it it just really wow <laughs> do you remember yeah. gack it's oh, kind of yeah. like gack yeah just cooler than I am. Well, <laughs> Gak and Pog. Yeah, this is taking 90s. me back to my, ele- yeah, my elementary school days. You know, you just wonder, like, when they grow up and they're professionals, it's, is it like this version of, like, the stress ball that you used to see, you know, the stereotypical oh, right, company yeah. executive with the stress ball? Is that what they're going to graduate to? Or yeah, a smash room. Yeah. Or the smash room. The, the Wall Street trader, right? The, mm-hmm. Bye, bye, bye. And you're squeezing the... Uh, Princeton, what are you kids into these days? So we're at the end of the school year, so I'm hearing a lot more kids ask, can we just go outside? Can we watch a video? Mm. Like, they're just getting burnt out of the school year. Um, so that's what they're just asking, can we have free time? And the <laughs> <laughs> free time. <laughs> Less different from asking, can we go outside? Well, well, now, when the weather's nice, you know, here in Kansas City, hit or miss, blink your eyes, and it's different. Um, and so, but when it's nice weather, they all want to just go outside. And do you ever indulge? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you, the final weeks, you're almost done. Yeah, May 26th. Yeah, not, not that anyone's counting. But yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that will do it for this episode of No Wrong Answers. So we should say Teach for America, Kansas City is the underwriter of this podcast. No Wrong Answers does retain total editorial control. What our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. We will have our weekly extra credit segment drop this Thursday. Uh, look for that in your feed. It's a special extra credit this week, a live taping from an actual school. I won't say any more than that, uh, but that will be in the extra credit feed come Thursday. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you find us, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours. Giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation, subscribe, leave us a review and keep the conversation going. Thanks to our teachers this week, Luann Fox, Princeton Grayson, Elaine Jordan. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. I'm Kyle Palmer, and remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. <laughs>